0: does have it all all of our pre-owned vehicles are hubler q certified which include a 128 point vehicle inspection a free carfax vehicle history report and two warranties a two-year 100,000 mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day 1,000 mile comprehensive warranty visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com
1: fan midday show jimmy cook and james boyd nice enough to make some time with us throughout the week, we'll have James in here in studio. You can find his work on The Athletic as one of the many Colts beat writers doing a great job throughout the year, keeping you covered on all things Colts. We shift, though, to the Annapolis Motor Speedway. A legend in his own right, the great Mark James of the IndyCar Radio Network. Nice enough to take some time with us. Mark, appreciate you making all the time for us this weekend. Obviously, you and I had a conversation on Indiana Sports Talk, and good to have you here now on the main airwaves here on the fan. I liken it to a... For all the drivers, right, it's still a delicious entree, but if you're a race fan, it is a delightful high-dollar appetizer at a five-star restaurant when you look at the Grand Prix and then the lead-up to the greatest spectacle in racing. And we got delivered one of those high-dollar-level appetizers or entrees over the weekend with a runaway domination from Alex Pelot.
2: Yeah, I think for sure, and uh, happy Monday, guys. Happy to be with you. Thanks for the invite, as always. But, uh, you know, I I think that, that, you know, there are those that will always pine for the return to the quote-unquote month of May with two weekends of qualifying and everything that goes along with that. But uh, I I think um, what I saw, and then I think the uh, the facts bear it out in terms of sales, that attendance was up uh for the weekend that i think that shows a tremendous commitment on the part of penske entertainment and uh, one of the hardest working men in show business uh the ims president doug Bowles. Mm-hmm. and uh you know i i looked down out of our broadcast booth at turn four and saw that turn four grandstand packed about as much as uh, i've ever seen it packed in quite some time for that event and um you know, what I thought was cool in the time that I had uh, the opportunity to walk around over the course of the weekend is, you know, given the price point for a general admission ticket and all that they have done to enhance the the, the, the viewing uh, points from the infield with the uh, expanded and extended viewing mounts uh, where you go on to the road course and the initiative video boards and, you know, the ever-expanding fan zone and all of that. I I think as much as anything, you know, you, you want to set the tone for the month with a good event. But I think as much as anything, that event is becoming key to introducing a whole new generation of fans to uh, uh, not only the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but also the NTT IndyCar Series. And yeah, I mean, uh, Alex Below was as dominant there as he was uh, at, uh, at, at at Laguna Seca last year. And um, I just think the kid is, uh, is a star on the rise. And of course, you know, no one knows for sure. Uh, what his future holds, uh, given where he'll be in 2024. Uh, But I, for one, hope he stays put in the NTT IndyCar series because, as I think I posted on social media, I think he is absolutely everything you would want in an ambassador for your sport.
3: Yeah, Mark, I was going to chime in there and kind of piggyback off what you said. What do you think Alex does for that next generation of fans, people who want to look at him and be like him and just the excitement he brings to the sport?
2: Well, I think you know he's uh, he's this generation's Elio, and I know Elio is still you know very much a part of the NTT IndyCar Series, and, and I'm not saying that that you know drivers have one persona on camera and another persona off, uh, but I think if if there are any uh, that are absolutely totally and completely genuine, uh, that uh, I think he fits into that category. I think what you see is what you get, and guys, I'm telling you. Uh, with with that mess that unfolded last year with his contract and his future with him and Ganassi and Errol McLaren, you know, we, we have media bullpen opportunities to kick off a weekend. And uh, he was always willing to be a part of those. Any question that anybody asked him about it, he didn't shy away from it. He didn't go onto the hauler and shut the doors and hide. Uh, he stood there and, and, and took it like a man. And, uh, you know, he stayed, um, you know, in, in contention for a championship throughout the course of the entire season and fell a, a, a little bit short. And and I, for one, as neutral as we're supposed to be, became, a, a, you know, a, if not a fan, that's certainly someone that has a tremendous amount of respect for his ability to focus on the task at hand and not allow things on the outside, especially things that he couldn't necessarily control serve as a distraction and I think that speaks well of it but uh, he's very personable very likable I think as a driver he has the respect of everyone in the paddock I've never really heard anybody complain about him or be concerned about him but not like the way he drives and uh, you know I, I I just think that he's the he's he's the real deal and he's the uh, he's the total package and if he sticks around this series for very long I think more championships will come and you'd like to think that given his recent success at the Indianapolis 500 and the team he's driving for this year, he'll be a contender for a win, especially now that he knows what he didn't know, uh, which resulted in his, in his runner-up finish to Elio Casper and Evans a couple of years ago when Elio won his fourth.
1: The voice of the NDT IndyCar Series, Mark James. nice to to make some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Mark, With Alex Below and his team at Chip Ganassi Racing deciding to go with the Red Firestone alternates to start the race, how much of that helped set the stage for this win, but also that first and only caution that allowed him to get a little bit of extra juice out of those tires?
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any question. As our driver analyst, Davey Hamill, and I discussed it, you know, it wasn't so much the order of, of, uh, you know, when you chose the Reds and when you chose the Blacks, but how you were able to manage them in those, those various stints. And, and, and Davey is of the opinion that the way they laid those out in terms of how they used them, you know, rotating between the reds and the black and in the order in which they did, I'm sorry, Kara crystallic would prefer me to say primary and alternates. <laughs> but just we'll call them primaries and alternates, but everybody knows what we mean. But I, I you know, Davy's of the opinion that, uh, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And, uh, you know, a lot of people might emulate that when they get back here a little bit later on in the year with that uh, that NASCAR IndyCar doubleheader weekend. I mean, uh, you know, that I, I think what it does, guys, is it gives you a little insight, and for the novice. It tells you how much this is a team sport. I mean, what they were able to do, I think, is, is akin to putting a game plan together with football with an offensive coordinator. I mean, you, you go in with a plan and you hope you're able to execute it. You, you hope your quarterback's able to, to carry that out, your offensive line and defensive line and all that stuff. and uh you know, in a defensive game plan, I, I I think it, it is indeed a team sport. And I don't know that people view it as, as, as that as much. But, you know, there have been times when the wrong call to come on and just the timing of what lap you come in has cost guys a, an opportunity for, for a win. It, it, and let's keep in mind, five different winners through five races. And so for all intents and purposes, it looks like this season is shaping up very much like last in which – the season champion won but one race during the year, but he was pretty consistent in terms of of him of his podium finishes and his ability to grab pole. And and I think that uh, that's, that's very much what we're looking at this year, even though we've now reached the point where we're going to put the championship discussion on hold for a couple of weeks and get back to that when we go to Detroit.
3: So, Mark, I've been living in Indy for about a year and a half now, I haven't made it to the Indy 500, hoping to go for the first time uh, this year. What can someone like me, who's still relatively new to the sport, new to the city, um, expect that weekend?
2: Well, I think you're going to be blown away. I, I think the earlier you can get there, the better. And I recommend that because it's just absolutely awesome to watch that place come to life. I mean, if you get in there, you know, 6 o'clock, 6.30, uh, and, and you just you, ha- you see the place relatively empty, and then uh, watch it come to life, and then, you know, kind of settle back in your seat about the time that the pre-race festivities and everything get going around, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning or so, um, you know, y- you could literally feel uh, throughout your entire body the energy built. Wow. And uh, the, the, the history and the tradition of the pre-race festivities and the order in which they're done, um, it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, humbling set of ceremonies. Uh, it uh, there's a, a tinge of patriotism in it for sure and respect and admiration for, for those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our country. And 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 then all of a sudden we shift our focus back to uh uh the the greatest race in the world and uh I, the command to start engines uh gives you a level of anticipation that uh if you're experiencing it for the first time, I'd be anxious to talk to you afterwards to see how that <laughs> felt. And then that 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 opening lap is is a combination of, of man machine power and chaos, which is unlike anything that you've ever seen. So, and and I think the only thing that will be stronger than your desire to see it the first time will be the desire to see it again and again and again.
1: Mark. For Alex Pillow, he's going to attempt to do what one other driver has ever done, which is sweep the month of May. Simon Pagino doing that in 2019. I know everybody says this, right? It's just like any other sport. What are you supposed to say about your car? But Alex Pillow talked a lot in the post-race about how they felt like they had the fast car, the right car all week. And I know there's so much that goes into it and, and luck factors in as well. But, but just how difficult of a feat is that to not only win the 500, as we well know, but complete this sweep?
2: Well, I think it's difficult in this day and age, as we just discussed about the championship. I mean, I I think it's difficult to win at Barber. It's difficult to win at Long Beach, at Worldwide Technology Raceway, Iowa Speedway, or anywhere. I mean, you're you're looking at at, at this past weekend. We had 27 cars in that field, and Davey and I discussed this too. I mean, out of those 27, there were over twenty cars in that field that you, you really felt like that that had a, le, a a legitimate shot to win the race. And I mean, think about that. I mean, there's there's no other uh, form of motorsports in the world. I don't care what anybody says. There is no other form of motorsports in the world <laughs> that you can say that about. This is the one and only that that is definitely true. And the fact that we've had five different winners, I think, reaffirms that. Uh, but it is uh, it, it, and it's difficult, uh, so difficult to win the. uh, The Indianapolis 500, uh, and you could ask anybody who won it how hard it is because, again, much like I just said about your first experience of the 500, Tony Kanaan and all have said it. The only thing stronger than a desire to win that race is the desire to win it again. And, you know, uh, it's like I've talked to Davey about. Davey was a two-time series runner-up in in the old IRL days, and Davey can tell you exactly when and where he lost – both of those championships. And we go back to last year. I think Scott Dixon will tell you where his opportunity won, his second went away. And all of those drivers, while they certainly remember the ones that, that they won, they can also tell you the very close calls they had that could have led to them getting, in some cases, some cases their first win or, in some cases, their second. or I mean, DiCumisato, for one, if things go differently in his dust-up with Dario, does he have three wins now? So there's probably no other event in the world where ifs and buts are more applicable than that one. And that's all part of the wonderful tapestry that that makes it the greatest spectacle in racing.
1: He is the legend, Mark Jane's nice to, have to take some time with us here on The Fan. It's the busiest time of the year. I know there's no days off in sports, but especially for you, Mark. We appreciate your time, as always, and looking forward to following along throughout the month. Guys,
2: keep up the great work you do all throughout the year, but especially this month. I mean, you give people a lot of tremendous access and really connect them to the greatest spectacle in racing. You guys are the mothership for our radio network, and we're proud of that long association for sure. Thank you.
4: Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.
3: Back in the drivehewler.com studio, I'm James Boyd here with Jimmy Cooks, host of the midday show on 107.5 93.5. The fan. We have Stephen Holder on the line, my fellow Colts reporter, someone who convinced me that the NFL was for me, and then we went through the most ridiculous season together so I still blame him for that (laughs) Um, but Holder how are you doing And I guess to start off you've seen Anthony Richardson just as we have what are your first impressions of the new face of the franchise
5: well first of all I have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) we've never had that conversation you totally made that up but uh you know that's that's what I've come to expect from you you know just can't be honest I get it, I get it. Uh, <laughs> no I I do think uh it just and by the way given more than one season you know after you've done like 17 like me hopefully they balance out there Let you go out. there you go uh so Anthony Richardson I, I really think what here's what we know so far I, I don't know what kind of player Anthony Richardson is going to be because mm-hmm. we can't know that uh, I do know that he is saying and doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. And I, I trust that that is going to have the potential to take him a long way. I think understanding his role as a quarterback and, and the, the import of that is is really important. And he does seem to get it. I, I love that about him. He, he has this unique ability to have a swagger and a confidence, but also not come across as, you know, as, 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 you know, undue confidence, I guess, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or just, you know, kind of bragging, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, look, I do what I do, but he also has a a way of really being, I I think showing humility that I believe is really going to endear him to his, his older teammates. It's it's a really tough thing for a young quarterback to come into a veteran team and they do have a fair number of veterans. Uh, I, I think it takes a certain kind of young man to do that. And he seems to have the ability to do it. And then lastly, I would just add, the the brief window we saw at rookie uh, rookie minicamp a couple of weeks ago, I think in that window you did see some of the flash mm-hmm. that that is so talked about and that he demonstrated at Florida last year. So it's all there. It's just gonna you know it's gonna be a process.
1: Stephen Holder with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Stephen, you kind of broke it down on Twitter either just before, or just after the schedule was released, highlighting that this is the fourth softest schedule in the NFL based off strength of schedule from last year and while you can't put all of your eggs in that basket perhaps it could change what the Colts are able to do this year on a week by week basis after you saw all those games get lined up and know where they're at now did that change anything for you finally seeing it on paper are you about in the same spot where this could be a good opportunity for them even if they're over under a set at like six and a half going into this year
5: Yeah, I mean, I I don't hate the over-under. I think it's, um, for me, the number is around seven, you know, just personally, but, you know, who knows, right? right? Um, I I do think that it's possible this is a season where our expectations could change over the course of the season, you know, because, honestly, they're they're so heavily dependent on on the quarterback and and the type of quarterback play they get. (coughs) Excuse me. Whether that quarterback is... You know, Anthony Richardson initially or, or Gardner Minshew. Uh, I think quarterback play last year had a lot to do with the results, right? It always does. And so in a positive or negative fashion. So, I mean, we know that. And so I think if the quarterback play is better than anticipated and you can't have high expectations for a rookie, you, you have to have modest expectations, but sometimes they surprise you. And so if that happens, and suddenly you're getting solid performances from Anthony Richardson and he's keeping defenses at bay and then you've got uh, Jonathan Taylor in the mix and he's doing Jonathan Taylor things again, you know, now you have a a scenario where they're going to win some games that maybe they weren't expected to and and who knows so I I just think that's kind of the fun of it Um, and going back to your original question did my expectations change? I mean I don't know that they changed but I do think there are some opportunities. I think the early part of the schedule is very manageable, at least if they're a competent football team. They were not last year, <laughs> but but if they are and they show that they're competent, you know, they can they can score a few wins in there. So it's up to them and and they've got to show us what they are for us to really truly gauge, you know, what success is I think this year.
3: Steven, you've covered this team for number of years now you know how much oh <laughs> uh, here he goes for listeners out there he thinks everything I say is like an old joke but no that's just <laughs> me giving my respect to the to the OGs of the, of the group but um you know Jim Ursay has loved his quarterbacks you know that position means more to him you know than anything and so for him to get a new one in there, a rookie one, which is what he's wanted all along. How much do you think Anthony Richardson means to him going forward as he tries to reconfigure this franchise?
5: Anthony Richardson represents hope. And and while that's something usually the fans latch on to, I've always said, you know, Jim Mercer is himself a huge fan. Mm-hmm. You know, look like he, he gets it and he's he's more invested than the rest of us. Because, you know, he's literally invested. But <laughs> at the same time, I mean, it, it, it really is for him, I think, a chance to hopefully, you know, he hopes, turn the page. I mean, the Andrew Luck saga has been crushing for everybody. There's no doubt about that. But, I mean, I, I remember Jim Irsay's face sitting in that press conference that night. I'll never forget it. And, I mean, he looked defeated. He looked crushed that night that Andrew Luck walked away. Because I think he knew what it meant for his mm-hmm. team, you know? And, and I think th- there really hasn't been an opportunity to really feel good about that position for any length of time, uh, since then. And, and this represents a chance for them to get back to that. I mean, there was a time when, you know, really a long time here, right? A period of two decades, frankly, where any Colts game was winnable because of the quarterback, I mean that is a great feeling you know and and that feeling has just been absent for for too long and and I think Jim Mercy sees the chance to recapture that. We don't know if it'll it'll be there, but but it's it's a it's their biggest swing yet, I think.
1: Stephen James brought up a great point earlier when we were discussing the schedule and my angst for the lack of primetime games. I get it. They have to be earned. But you look around the league, there's a handful of teams that I don't really think earned three, four primetime games when maybe the Colts could have gotten one. But James brought up the point that if the Colts would have done something that only a handful of teams would actually do or have the gall to do and straight up say he's our starter week one, he's going to be under center week one, that maybe there would have been an angle to have another rookie potential superstar quarterback match him up against Bryce Young in Carolina or match him up against C.J. Stroud when the Texans face off or Trevor Lawrence in the Jaguars. Do you think that could have changed anything? if They, would, I mean, they, don't, they wouldn't say that just for the sake of getting a primetime game, I know that, but would that have changed something if this was a clear he's starter week one direction for this franchise?
5: I mean, perhaps I do think that they were, they, they're going to continue to be you know ambiguous about it, right. you know, just so that they don't box themselves in. But I think that's, it's probably the approach that other teams have taken too. I, I don't know offhand, like what the Panthers have said about Bryce Young. I don't know if they've committed to him starting week one. I, I don't think the Texans have necessarily committed to CJ Stroud week one. It's just what teams do. But, um, but I, but I do think there's probably more ambiguity here because you do have gardner Minshew, So I get it on the TV, you know, on the TV side of it. Um, it may have made a difference. I mean, if, if there was no gardner Minshew, if it was Anthony Richardson and Sam Ellinger, I think we would be having a much clearer conversation, right? And not to slight Sam Ellinger, but I, I think at the end of the day, uh, he, he doesn't trump the, the potential of Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson would start if that was his competition. Um, but it is Gardner Minshew, and he, he has started a lot of games in this league. So th- that does make it a little more complicated. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, th- they, they definitely are starting to loosen up the, the flex scheduling policies, and I think you're going to see more of that um, going forward. And so they'll, they'll have some opportunities. It really boils down to whether they get hot and whether the quarterback becomes a storyline and someone people want to see, then that could that could matter. I would say that Anthony Richardson. I know the the fantasy people out there are very uh, are very invested in him and very interested in, in what it looks like for him. And that sometimes can get you get you some eyeballs too. So we'll see how that goes.
3: I'm just picturing Shane Steichen. Uh bringing up fantasy to him in a press conference and him just looking like <laughs> we do not care <laughs> at yeah,
5: all. I'll leave that question for you uh, yeah. um I'm gonna ask questions that actually get
1: answered
3: <laughs> <laughs> let's hope let's hope um but again Stephen when it comes to the rest of this draft class there's some pieces there with Josh Downs Juju Brents how do you think those two offensively and defensively can maybe step in and potentially have a A say so or an impact quicker than Anthony Richardson can.
5: Yeah, I I think that's a good point. I think, you know, it's it's possible both those guys could be in the lineup day one. I think it's not likely, definitely the strong possibility. And I think that they have a chance to have real impact right out the gate. I I like those picks. I I like this draft overall. I mean, ask me again in three years, but (laughs) I think right now, you know, all we can go by is just you know first impressions I, I do like that there was a very clear approach you know they they went for high-end athletes and I think you're always trying to do that but they they really prioritized that but I think they also got guys who can play in those instances as well I mean you know with the two players you just mentioned I mean they might be really good athletes and 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 have high athletic scores, but they also are really proven, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not like they're just some guys who just went to the combine and put up a bunch of numbers. Like you guys have, have done it. I mean, they have, they're very experienced players and, and they have, they have performed at a high level uh, on big stages. So I, I don't think you're really, I, I think sometimes it, this, this, draft class has kind of gotten painted as just a, a class where it's like, ah, oh, they just went for a bunch of athletes. But that's that sells some of these guys short, I think. You know, these these are guys who are productive players, and they're going to be counting on them in some cases pretty early on.
1: Steven Holder with us of ESPN.com. Covers the Colts. a great job there here on the Fan Midday Show. Steven, it was pretty clear from Garden Minshew's comments that – at least when he was initially signed, that he was ready to work, he, he was ready to battle, whatever it took. But he also understood that that this is a weird transition year for the Colts, or at least it could be. How does his dynamic or his value change if he is the backup week one but is relied upon to have that veteran leadership for a young quarterback like Anthony Richardson in that quarterback room?
5: Yeah, I think Hughie – I think he can handle that role. Uh, he, it wasn't exactly the role he had in Philly, but to some extent, you know, you still had a, a young starter in Jalen Hurts. I mean, he's still a young guy, and not that Gardner Minshew is some you know right. grizzled veteran, but I mean, he's still pretty young himself. But but I do think Gardner has always kind of had a a way about him, a maturity about him that. Enabled him to kind of handle different roles, and you saw he stepped in last year, and, and the team had a lot of confidence in him in Philadelphia. I, I think they went zero and two, but I mean they were they were pretty competitive in those games, and I thought he had some moments, you know, where where he showed potential enough so that Shane Steichen wanted him here. I mean, th- let's be honest, that's that's probably the main reason he is here is that Shane Steichen is the head coach. So you know, when you're the other thing he has going for him is. Uh, he has experience in the system. So that creates, I, I think, a really important role for him, no matter what, what, no matter if he's a starter or not. It creates a role where he can have a, a lot of influence and, and really be a resource uh, for Anthony Richardson and, and Sam Ellinger as well, as long as he's here. So I think it's a good thing, and, and ultimately I think Gardner – is a guy who can handle that situation well and seems to have the maturity to, you know, deal with the the punches as they come.
3: Steven, we know the offensive line was one of the weakest units of this team last year. Perhaps most surprising to me throughout the draft was not really addressing it. And they got Blake Freeland, but they didn't really address it, I guess, as you know, obviously as, as I might have guessed going in. What are your thoughts on what they do next to potentially you know, bolster that offensive line and do something to make sure they don't have what happened last year repeat itself.
5: Well, I agree. I, I do think they they mentioned or Chris Ballard at least mentioned strongly suggested, I guess, that there were some veteran interior linemen that they have been talking to. And I think that's his way of saying, you know we're we're considering some signings there. And I think that's probably the way they go. They have done this before you know they Eric Fisher a couple of years ago at left tackle they signed him after the draft I think a week or two after the draft now he didn't perform great necessarily but he did ultimately become their starter at left tackle you know getting a left tackle after the draft I mean that's you know that's pretty tough to do so but they were able to do that then um i i think the any more competition i think on the interior is what i would want to see uh, particularly we're talking a right guard which was really problematic last year I think you got to have some competition there, and I, I do think Freeland was a slight surprise to me because I didn't think they were going to really double down a tackle like that, but in retrospect, the more I think about it, I'm actually fine with it uh he he definitely could be you would think a um, a swing tackle, which is really important I mean they're they're one injury away at, at right or left tackle from being in a really bad place so so that's really important, and and they have had to dip into that tackle depth a couple of times here in the last couple of years. So so it matters, and and who knows? I mean, you may you may find they may find or discover that he has some position flexibility. Who knows? You know. So I think he's a good player, a good athletic player with with good movement skills, and then you figure out where he fits and what his role is later on. I guess it's kind of been the Colts' approach. But I mean, so they improved the offensive line overall. I just don't know if they did it at the place we thought they needed it most, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So so we'll see. I, I do think that they they can't leave that to chance. They have to feel somewhat confident about that offensive line going into the season, uh, particularly with a young quarterback. You know, he's he's going to have enough on his plate. I, don't make him have to compensate for, for poor protection, too.
1: Yeah, we completely agree with you on that front. I mean, you, you don't want to make the process harder than it needs to be. Even if it is Minshew, but particularly if it's Anthony Richardson. And, and to kind of build off of James's question, Stephen, 14 years of experience for Tony Sperano Jr. First year now as the Colts offensive line coach. You look at the resurgent that happened across the board, particularly in the running game last year. Obviously, he was an assistant with New York, but you look at what he was able to do with the Giants and with Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones. Where's the expectation level for him to bring this offensive line back to form or close to back to form? And how much did that weigh into how they attacked the adjustments they made so far this offseason up in the trenches?
5: It's a really interesting hire. I mean, the, the offensive line coach is so critical. I mean, I, I know Frank Reich at multiple occasions has told me, and this is just his opinion, but I, I think a lot of people agree. He would always say the offensive line, coach is your most important hire, like as much or more so than your your coordinator even. So he just thought that position and, and the, the job of that particular coach teaching technique and, and with all of the uh, all the above-the-neck stuff that they have to deal with at that position, he just thought it was so, so critical to have a, an excellent teacher at that spot. So So that is the context here. That's how important this job is. And it'll be interesting to see how he adapts. I mean, you know, the first time, uh, you know, offensive line coach, he's been an assistant offensive line coach, at least at the NFL level uh, for Tony Sperano Jr. And I'm interested to see how he adapts. But I, I would say the other thing I I can tell you is that uh, Shane Steichen had a, a really uh, thorough interview process for his assistant coaches from everything I've heard. I mean, he, he went from A to Z and the interviews were, were very non-conventional and like extremely thorough. And so he must've seen something. And everything I've been told is that, you know, he put these guys through the ringer in these interviews. So that, that says something about, about the types of uh, coaches they hired, even though they did hire uh, somewhat younger, a, a younger staff. And in some cases, not quite as experienced as, as you might be accustomed to but I I definitely think uh, they had to earn it from all indications in these interviews
3: Steven the other thing I want to touch on is Germany do you have any food recommendations for your boy because you know when we go on the road the joke (laughs) Jimmy is that I don't eat what everyone else eats because if I can't pronounce it which I can't pronounce anything in Germany when I get there (laughs) so will you be my chaperone and help me you know expand my horizons
5: yeah, I, I think let let so start with a Tripadvisor account, okay? So <laughs> sign up and uh, do do your research. I've not been to Germany, so I, we're going to learn this together. Hey, let's do it. <laughs> um, I have no idea. So we got we got a few months, and I think we got time to figure this out. And uh, yeah, let's let's go for it. I, I mean, look, I'm I'm open to anything for the most part. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I'm, let's 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 broaden your horizons, Jay. I think we can do it.
3: Will Anthony Richardson be the quarterback in Germany? <laughs> do you think yes. in Week Ten? Yes. All right. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, If not. What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what? Like,
5: I mean, unless unless Gardner Minshew is the second coming of Patrick Mahomes, and he has not been for the past four years. So um, unless that's the case, and they just he he just goes on a tear then by all means go for it. (laughs) But short of that, um, no, if if you're losing with Gardner Minshew, you can lose with Gardner. Excuse me. You you can lose with Anthony Richardson, you know, and, and that the added bonus of him, you know, developing in the meantime. So that's my take on that. So we'll see how it goes. Maybe uh, Minshew will surprise people. We'll see.
1: Last thing on my front, Steven, uh, I want to give you an opportunity as the Miami native. And I do agree with you. He's probably one of the most undervalued coaches in the NBA. Uh, Summarize what Eric Spolstra, Jimmy Butler, and company are doing down there.
5: Oh, man. it's uh, Look, I'll tell you, I, I covered the heat for four years in a previous life. And so I'm familiar with that organization. <laughs> and I, I will tell you, it's it's a culture. It really is a culture. And everybody talks about having culture, and it's easy to say that. Uh, they live it, and they have proven it time and time again. And it's been handed down from you know guys like Alonzo Mourning, uh, to Udonis Haslam, and it really all started with Pat Riley, frankly. And I, I just, I love it. I think it's, it, it just really is uh, a testament to to the importance of culture and committing to things like hard work and defense. I, I real quickly, I do remember. Uh, this isn't about spolster, but I remember when Pat Riley was coach. They had this really uh, unique grading system where they would, you know, before the the real emergence of of analytics that we see today and they had their own grading system. I never got the details of it, but apparently it was like, it was so hard and, and they graded guys at a ridiculous level. Uh, But the whole point behind that was, you know, to, to engender more effort from guys, you know, and, and it's like, we don't care what other teams ask of you here. We ask more. And so that's always been a, a part of their culture, and Spolster was raised under that. And i would tell you, he has a great touch uh, when it comes to getting the most out of guys. I and mean, we've seen that in no better example than Jimmy Butler emerging um, finally in his career and blossoming. So anyway, th- I don't know if they're going to win, but they, they overachieve year in and year out, and there's a reason for that.
1: It's going to be fun to see what they're able to do against Boston. Always fun to get a chance to talk with you, Stephen. Thanks so much for making some time for us.
3: Still here in the drivehubler.com studio, I'm James Boyd with Jimmy Cooks, Eddie Garrison, 107.5 93.5. The fan, we got my buddy Brett Siegel on the line from Clutch Points, um, covering the NBA at large. And we're going to ask him about the Pacers because here in Indy at large is some huge stakes when it comes to these ping pong balls tomorrow night. So, Brett, um, assuming nothing crazy happens and the Pacers stay in that six, seven, eight range. Who are some players that you think would fit this team? And I know here it's all about wings, wings, more wings.
6: (laughs) Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the Pacers are in a very interesting spot, and I think that they're in one of the most intriguing spots in this entire draft, simply because this is a team that's on the rise. You have Tyrese Halliburton as your all-star point guard for many years to come. You've surrounded him with capable talents like Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, that have been there. And now all of a sudden, the Pacers could just be one player away from being a team that's back in the playoffs and making some noise, kind of like that we saw from the New York Knicks this year. I think that that's a viable solution for them heading into the 2023-24 season of being a team like that that ends up getting one of those middle seeds because of all the talent surrounding Halliburton. And then let's say you end up with that sixth pick like you just mentioned, you have a chance to add another player like Benedict Matherin who you added last year. A player like Amen Thompson, a player like Asar Thompson, guys who are just straight athletes, can play on the wing, can play with the ball in their hands, and are virtually unguardable because they can play any position on the floor. So that that's really the intriguing spot that the Pacers are in is if they end up with that five, six, seven spot, they're gonna be a team in the draft that not only are teams trying to call up and move up in the draft with, but they're also in a position where they can get another one of these hybrid players that can really separate them from other teams in the Eastern Conference.
1: Brett, the Pacers have, to their name, three first-round picks. Obviously, two of those three are towards the bottom of the draft. But when you look at this class and you look at maybe how deep it is, is there more value than years past on those back-end picks if the Pacers were were wanting to move those around, whether it was to trade up or whether it was to bring in a, a veteran piece or two for this young core?
6: It's certainly interesting to talk about because you look at some of those guys that are in the 20 to even 40 range – a lot of them are 50-50 kind of hit-or-miss guys. Like, yeah, they had some really good college careers. They have a lot of potential. But when you look at them going to the league, will they pan out? It's a, it's a really big question mark, and it sounds like a very cop-out answer, I guess. But there's really a lot of unknowns in this draft. Other than those top ten guys, other than the the, the lottery per se, I have a lot of questions surrounding some of these guys. And, and just looking at somebody, for example, a guy like Derek Whitehead, undisputed lottery pick coming into duke during his freshman year had that foot injury Mm -hmm. didn't play a lot at duke and now there's questions about where he will end up in this draft if he falls out of the lottery is he a guy that teams will potentially miss out on and will he fall down draft boards and then another guy out on the west coast from pepperdine maxwell lewis who i'm especially high on he's a guy that could absolutely flourish and nobody really knows much about him so i think we'll have a, a better per se, of what things will look like after the combine this week and after we get to see these guys actually play in scrimmages and play against one another and after scouts get to sit down and talk with them. But right now, I I don't really know how to answer that. I think that the back end of this draft in the end of the first round is very hit or miss this year.
3: Bray, you touched on a little bit there with guys having great college careers and maybe not having that same level of success in the NBA or being able to translate it. I think two of those guys here in the Indiana area are Zach Eady and Trace Jackson Davis. There are question marks about if they can translate the success they have the college level to the NBA. But one guy who seems, at least to me, to be a pretty good pick and someone you pr- can be pretty safe about is Jalen Hood-Sophino out at IU. How do you think his game will maybe translate or better you know, benefit or have better benefit in the NBA with just the spacing considering his skill set?
6: Yeah, I think that he's one of the better shooters in this draft class, and I think that there's a lot of growth for him this week at the Combine and through these pre-draft workouts. Right now, I have him just outside the lottery as a draft prospect, but based on how things go this week and over the course of the next two, three weeks, he could easily work his way up to the end of the lottery, similar to what we saw with Cord Kisper a few years ago when he went to the Washington Wizards. I think that Hood Shafino is in a similar spot to that. And he could be a prospect that really comes in and is able to contribute off the bench right away. A solid guard, known for playing on the ball, but I think that he can really contribute as a guy that runs off screens, spot of three point shooting, and can play a little bit of everything either on the wing or as a as a bigger guard for many teams in this league.
1: Brett Siegel with us covers the NBA at the national level for Clutch Points. Brett, I want to get your thoughts on three teams in which you feel like has the toughest offseason facing them when you look at philadelphia when you look at phoenix and you look at golden state obviously varying degrees of their arcs for where they are as a franchise the warriors being the cream of the crop for so long and obviously they're going to have to face some roster decisions just like those other two teams i mentioned who has the toughest challenge this offseason and, and how different do you think those three teams will look next year
6: It's an interesting question because I think that they all face different challenges that create a unique situation for each. So you look at the Philadelphia 76ers, obviously the questions right now surround Doc Rivers. We've seen a lot of head coaches on the outs this offseason, which in my opinion, a lot of them shouldn't have been fired. But that's just kind of the way of the road right now in the NBA. So Doc Rivers potentially being fired from Philly and going elsewhere, it's still a very real possibility. Again, a better picture will be painted for that over the course of the next week or so as, as they have their exit interviews and as Elton Brand and Daryl Moore are able to sit down and come up with a plan of what this franchise is going to look like moving forward. But I think that Philadelphia is definitely turning downwards right now. You have that Doc Rivers situation. You have Joel Embiid coming off an MVP season. Obviously, his frustrations are very clear with not being able to get past the Eastern Conference semifinals in recent years. James Harden is a major question mark. He could up and leave, either go to Houston or somewhere else in the offseason. So Philly has their own internal problems to deal with there. You look at the Phoenix Suns, I think that they're on red alert entering this offseason because Kevin Durant is approaching the age where he's still going to be playing at a superstar All-NBA level, but you have to have that in your mind that he's an aging veteran in this league. How much more can you really get from him without having a young core to kind of back him up? Chris Paul. His contract situation is very interesting this offseason. They could potentially opt out of his deal, making him a free agent, or they could trade him to free up room. there. You have Devin Booker, who's going to have his fourth or fifth head coach since entering the league. So a lot of questions surround the Phoenix Suns as well. For the Golden State Warriors, I'm not too worried about the direction for them. I think that that core of Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry is there to stay. They obviously love Andrew Wiggins. They're not going to be getting rid of him. They'll have conversations about trading Jordan Poole, but the big question mark surrounds Bob Myers this offseason and whether or not he will be back as the president of basketball operations and the general manager for the Golden State Warriors. There's a lot of belief right now around the league that he could potentially take the year off and take the 2023-24 season off to be with his family until reevaluating things moving forward. So there's a lot going on with Bob Myers. There's teams pursuing him. The Warriors want him back. But he's truly 50-50 on the fence whether or not he wants to remain in the NBA or kind of sit back, relax, and kick his feet up at the beach for the year. So we'll see how that plays out with the Warriors.
4: Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kisimta, Ofatumumab 20-milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kisimta.
3: But I know you're locked in with the combine, the draft coming up, evaluating players, looking at the playoffs and how that's going to you know, all shake out. But as a fan, how much have you enjoyed just the parity within the league this year and not really knowing who's going to be there at the end?
6: Yeah, very much. I think that this year has been one of the most open years we've ever seen in the NBA. And we've been saying that ever since the first few weeks of the season. I mean, we saw teams get off the fast and hot starts, and obviously that early on, it doesn't mean much. But we were going into the final, what, three weeks of the season, and we still didn't know who was going to make the playoffs in the Western Conference. That Mm -hmm. race came down to the final few days of the regular season. And at the All-Star break in the Eastern Conference, there were still 13 teams in contention for playoff spots. So I think that the league's in a great place. Obviously, with this new CBA deal coming out that's going to penalize these teams that spend a lot of money and it's going to make it harder for them to create these, in quotes, super teams, I think that that's going to create even more parity in this league because you're going to see some of these low-market teams being able to spend the same amount as the Miami Heat, as the Milwaukee Bucks, the Boston Celtics, Golden State Warriors, the two teams in Los Angeles, simply because of all the salary restraints those teams are going to face. Just for example, you look at a team like the Warriors – they have over $200 million invested in payroll for next season, counting Draymond Green's player option. And assuming that they keep Green and all those guys around – they're going to face heavy, heavily taxed bills on their end, and they won't be able to go out and free agency and use their mid-level exception like other teams can. So it's going to create a lot of decisions for those teams that spend a lot of money, and for these lesser teams, like I just mentioned, they'll be able to get them to the market for some of these bigger-name free agents, and who knows, maybe they'll be able to change their fortunes that have been present over the last few years.
3: Brett, looking out west, what excites you the most about this Jokic AD matchup? And who do you think has the most to gain? You got Jokic on one hand, who's been a two time MVP, but hasn't gotten to the finals. But then you also have AD, who still gets so much criticism in the street clothes, Davis nickname, all those things. And sometimes he takes nights off and, and can get criticized for that. So who do you think has the most to gain? And what excites you most about them going, you know, head to head?
6: Well, obviously, the most to gain is Nikola Jokic. And that's simply because the Nuggets haven't won a championship and Nikola Jokic hasn't won a championship. They're the one seed in the West. They have high expectations for themselves and everybody's been counting them out all season, including entering this series. I've been seeing a lot of people saying that they're taking the Lakers and five Lakers in six. Nobody's really given the Nuggets credit. So if Jokic and Denver can win this series and advance to the NBA finals, that will not only do a lot for his legacy, but if they reach the NBA finals, I truly believe that they win it. I think if Jokic and the Nuggets get past the Lakers and they get there they'll win their championship, Michael Malone wins his championship and all the doubt surrounding this franchise that is not necessarily a big market team. I mean Denver's more of one of those small market teams per se. But they they win the finals that's going to change drastically for their franchise moving forward. It's going to change the outlook for what's going to happen for them in terms of free agency, in terms of the draft, in terms of just the, the belief and thinking around the league in them. Because right now, they're still in a class like the Memphis Grizzlies, the Los Angeles Clippers, those teams that are good. You see them in the playoffs, but nobody really uses them as the contending threats like when the, the Suns were there a few years ago, when the Warriors are there, when the Lakers are there. So I think that Jokic definitely has the most to gain. But what I'm looking at in this series is can the Lakers defend the way that they did against the Warriors? Because when you look at that series, Clay Thompson was non existent. And obviously, he had tough shooting stretches, but you have to give Darvin Hamm and the Lakers' defense, a ton of credit for scheming up different things to take him out of the picture. Jordan Poole was non existent. Andrew Wiggins really didn't have that good of offensive performances other than that one 20 point game. So, can they do the same thing? that they did against Klay Thompson and others against Jamal Murray. Can they take him out of the picture and only make Nikola Jokic beat you? Can you take Michael Porter Jr. out of the perimeter there? So there's a lot of different question marks surrounding the Lakers' defense, and I think that their athleticism and their their wingspans and their length out on the perimeter, I think that that's actually going to bother Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. quite a bit in this series.
1: He's Brett Siegel of Clutch Points, National NBA Insider and Reporter for Clutch Points. Thanks for making some time,
3: Brett. Absolutely, I appreciate it. Bring us Wimby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Gotta gotta recruit Brett in there uh, with our seance ceremonies and whatnot that we need for the Pacers to win the NBA draft lottery tomorrow night.